Chapter fifty of the Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust. Chapter fifty. There are many people who pass Brixton Prison every day who have no conception of its whereabouts. The main entrance is tucked away a hundred yards or so down an unobtrusive turning off Brixton Hill. Within a little gatehouse inside the barred gates, a principal warder sits on duty. Although Foyle was tolerably well known to the prison officials, the usual formalities had to be gone through, and he was kept outside till a note he had pencilled was sent up and replied to by the governor. Then, conducted by a warder, he was taken over the flagged courtyard and through long corridors to the remand side of the prison. Another warder opened one of the heavy cell doors, and a man seated on a low bed looked up with a frown of recognition. The superintendent remained standing by the doorway. "'Sorry to trouble you, Abramovich,' he said briskly. "'I just wanted to have a little talk with you.' Ivan rose and deliberately turned his back. "'You must go to my solicitor if you have any questions to ask,' he said sullenly. Heldon Foyle seated himself at the end of the bed and nursed his stick. "'That wouldn't be of much use, would it?' he asked smilingly. "'What I want to speak to you about has nothing to do with the present charge against you. Mr. Grell is in our hands now, and in the circumstances I thought you might care to know it.' The valet wheeled about and thrust his face close to the immobile face of the detective. "'You've arrested Mr. Grell,' he cried. "'Are you lying?' "'I am not lying. He is in custody, and may be charged, unless you like to clear him.' Ivan took a couple of short steps. His lips were firmly pressed together. The detective watched him narrowly as he came to an abrupt halt. "'You think I can clear him?' he said slowly. "'You are wrong.' "'But you know he never committed the murder.' The words came sharp as a pistol-shot. Ivan never answered, and Foyle went on. "'You have done all you could to help him escape us. Now we have got him, you can only help him by telling the truth. There was some strong motive to induce you to take all the risks you have done. What is at the back of it?' Ivan studied his questioner suspiciously. Foyle made haste to dispel what was at the back of his mind. "'You've had reason for refusing to speak before,' he insisted. "'I'm not blaming you. Consider the thing fairly as it stands now, and you'll see that you best serve your master by perfect frankness. I'm not trying to trap you. You may trust me.' The scowl on the face of the valet faded, and his sloping shoulders squared a little. "'You are right. Secrecy can no longer do good,' he said. "'I will tell you what I know.' He sat down by Foyle's side and went on. "'I was always what you English call a bad egg.' I broke with my family many years ago, it doesn't matter who they were, and left Russia to become an adventurer at large. In the years that followed, I was everything everywhere, seaman, barber, waiter, soldier, and gambling-house cheat. I wasn't particular how I picked up a living, nor where it led me. All that won't interest you. I was operator in a gambling joint at San Francisco when I first met Goldenberg, though I knew him by reputation. He came to our place now and again, and we were on speaking terms— after that, Grell came, and I mistook him for the other man. That was how we first became acquainted. "'That would be almost five years ago,' interposed Foyle quietly. "'Just about that. They never came together, by the way, and Grell always called himself Mr. Johnson. His own name would have been too well known. Well, one night, or rather one morning, he had been winning pretty heavily. He must have had close upon four or five thousand dollars in notes on him. At the time I didn't attach any significance to the fact that two or three of the worst toughs at the table went out shortly after him. I followed about five minutes later to get a breath of air, and came on the gang in a narrow deserted street, just as they brought Grell down with a sandbag. It was no business of mine, and ordinarily I should have walked away, but that I'd had a little difference with one of the gang earlier in the day, so I sailed in with a gun, broke him up, and helped Grell to his hotel.' 
He came round before I left him, and I told him my name, and he gave me five hundred dollars, telling me to look to him if ever I was in trouble. Well, next day I was fired from my job. I could guess that the people whose game I'd spoilt were at the bottom of it, but that didn't worry me much. I had a bit of money, and I came back to Europe, London, Paris, Vienna, Rome, everywhere but Russia. I lived sometimes by my wits, sometimes by any odd job I could turn my hand to. My father and mother had both died, and my only living relative was my sister, a girl of eighteen, living in St. Petersburg. From her I heard occasionally. A spasm crossed his face as though some painful recollection had been brought to his mind, and he passed a handkerchief across his brow, which had suddenly become wet with perspiration. It was through her that I again met Grell, he resumed, speaking more slowly. She was alone and practically unprotected. She wrote to me that a certain high official had been paying her unwelcome attentions, but I suspected nothing till I one day learned that she had been arrested for a political offence. She, who never knew the meaning of the word politics, I knew what that meant. At the time I was in straits myself, for fortune had not been kind at the cards. This was in Vienna. I was staring out of my window in a kind of daze when I saw a man pass in a motor-car. It was Grell, the man whom I had known as Johnson. In desperation I sought him out. It was easy enough to find where he was staying, and told him my story. I asked him to loan me money, because I knew that I might have to bribe officials. He offered to do more, to accompany me to St. Petersburg, and use all his influence on behalf of my sister. It was at his suggestion that I travelled as his valet. My appearance had altered since I was last in Russia, but difficulties might have arisen. We travelled night and day, but we were too late. The girl who had never harmed a single person in her white life was dead, killed by the hardships to which she had been subjected. I... I... He covered his eyes with his hands for a moment, and Foyle waited patiently. Ivan controlled himself with an effort. Grell advised me to come away, but I was determined to stay for a while. I had work to do. I told him nothing, but steadily I sought for the man who had killed her, as surely as though he had plunged a dagger in her heart. I found him at last. Wait a moment, interjected Foyle quickly. I want to know nothing of that. That has nothing to do with me. He had guessed what work it was that the hot-blooded Russian had remained to do. No man is bound to incriminate himself. It was through Grell that I got away scot-free. No one suspected the valet of so well-known a man. He asked no questions, though I could tell that he knew what— what I knew. He risked much to shield me, although never a word passed between us. Could I do less when it came to my turn? I came back to England with him, and I remained his personal servant. I kept my distance from the other servants. In fact, you pretended to have little acquaintance with English, interrupted Foyle. Ivan nodded. That was so. On the nights when I was free, I wandered about London and picked up a few old acquaintances, among them being Charlie Condit. I shan't tell what I knew about him, but it was enough to keep him civil, and later on he did what I told him. On the night that the murder occurred, I happened to be in the hall about nine or a little after, when I saw a man and a woman through the shaded glass standing on the steps outside. I opened the door before they could ring. For a moment I thought the man was Mr. Grell, but a second later I recognised Goldenberg. He did not remember me. The woman, too, I knew at once. I had met her occasionally in different cities of Europe. It was the Princess Petrovska. Goldenberg spoke of an appointment, and showed me a note from Mr. Grell directing that the bearer should be shown to the study to await his arrival. That was enough for me. I showed them up and left them. I did not hear Mr. Grell return, but about ten o'clock he rang for me and met me at the door of his study. He told me that he was expecting a lady, and if she called she was to be brought straight up, and he said the other people were just going. Almost immediately after he told me, she came. Wills was going to the door, but I was in front, and I showed her up. Foyle shifted his position a little. Who was she? he asked. I couldn't see her face. She wore a heavy veil. All right, go on. 
I knocked at the door of the study, but no one replied. She pushed by me and entered, closing the door after her. I went away to my own room. Whatever was taking place was no business of mine. I must have dozed off in my chair, for when I was awakened by Mr. Grell shaking me by the shoulder, he was white and quite collected. "'Ivan,' he said, "'there's been murder. Come with me. Don't speak, and tread softly.' I followed him into the study. All the lights were out, and before turning them up he locked the door. As he turned the switch I could see the body lying on the couch and drew back. "'Who is it?' I asked. "'Goldenberg,' he replied, and after a pause, "'He was a relative of mine. I have killed him. You must help me to get away, Ivan.' He seemed profoundly moved, and yet held himself strongly in hand. One thing I noticed, although he said he had done it, his hands and clothes were spotless, and yet there had been much blood about the room. I said nothing of that, and he quickly began to turn things out of his pockets. Both he and the dead man were in evening dress, and he hastily transferred all his property to the dead man's pockets, taking what Goldenberg possessed. He picked up the sheath of the dagger from the floor. It was one he had bought in South America. "'It will give us a chance to get well clear if they think that this is my body,' he explained. "'Go and pack a bag, Ivan.' When I got back with the bag, he had finished. He put on a hat and overcoat, and we went out, walked to Victoria Station, and from there took a taxicab to Charing Cross. From there we walked to an all-night Turkish bath establishment, and that gave us an opportunity to change into some rough tweeds that I'd shoved in the bag.' In the morning we went to the East End and fixed up rooms with some people I knew of. We had come away without any money, but Grell somehow managed to get in touch with the Princess Petrovska, with whom, apparently, he had some arrangement. She had, it seems, booked through to Paris from Charing Cross, but instead of getting on the boat at Folkestone, had returned by the next train and taken quiet lodgings at Kennington. That was to put you on a false track in case of accidents. Foyle smiled a little ruefully. So that was how it was done, he remarked. We were determined to get out of the country, but the reward bill with the description of Goldenberg that pictured Grell stopped us trying ordinary methods. It was necessary to raise money, and I, recklessly enough, I suppose, went out with the pearls which Mr. Grell had entrusted to me in the hope of meeting a jeweller, with whom I had a casual acquaintance, at the restaurant when you fell in with me. The jeweller's letter which you found on me was, by the way, a forgery. When you seized me, I was taken by surprise. When I was allowed to go, after you had told me that the dead man was not Grell, I felt certain that you would have me followed. Your men were very clever, and I could not shake them off at first. I was determined to go to any length to protect Grell, so I went into an outfitter's where there was a public telephone, and put a call to a place where I was sure to find Condit. I fixed up with him to wait for the man who was shadowing me, and I led him down to Whitechapel. It was simple enough for Condit to drop on him from behind, and then the two of us knocked him senseless, got him into a cab, and carried him away to Smike Street, to the place which you raided. Mr. Grell knew nothing about that incident till it was over. He was staying in Grave Street at the time, and the idea occurred to me of holding your man as a hostage. We meanwhile contrived to send a note to Sir Ralph Fairfield. In case of accidents, I was to meet him in Grave Street, and lead him round about till I was certain he was not followed. "'Then you were the black-bearded man who fired at me,' exclaimed Foyle. "'I might have guessed it.' "'And so you were the navvy,' said Ivan. "'I didn't know that, but I at once made up my mind it was dangerous to meddle with Fairfield if he was watched. I gave him the slip, went back to Mr. Grell, and typed out a note to you. You got it?' "'Yes, I got it. Where did the paper you used come from?' Ivan's brow contracted into a frown of deep thought. "'I forget. No, I got it from Mr. Grell. He tore off a half-sheet from a letter.' Foyle was thinking of the fingerprints he had found on that notepaper. Ivan plunged again into his narrative. After that, the princess came, and conned it. She had fixed up an arrangement with the people living in the house that they were to declare her their daughter if inquiries were made. I don't know if she slept thereafter, but she did that night. We worked out a cipher in order to attempt to communicate secretly with either Sir Ralph Fairfield or Lady Eileen Meredith. As I have said, the lack of money was our trouble, and we had to get some somehow.' 
Condit went away, and I persuaded Mr. Grell to go with him and spend the night at a gambling joint in Smike Street. I remained. You see, we guessed you might want to examine the house, but we weren't certain. We were right. As you know, I only got away over the roofs just in time, and the princess slipped away while you were engaged. After that, it was a game of hide-and-seek. We decided that it was too dangerous to keep your detective a prisoner, and sent him back in a motor-car we hired. It was easy enough to make a false number to slip over the real one so that it couldn't be traced. It was my idea after that that Mr. Grell should become a watchman on the river until we could get away by embarking before the mast. We tried the advertisement method of communication and failed. The princess undertook to see Lady Eileen, with what result you know. You know all that has happened since. I do not regret what I have done. If the killing of you or any other man would have saved Grell, I would not have hesitated. Thanks, said Foyle dryly. You had a good try more than once. Now, are you willing to have your statement taken down by a shorthand writer, so far as it refers to events in London? I'll repeat it when you like, answered Ivan, squaring his shoulders. Now you say that you want to prove Mr. Grell's innocent, I have nothing to hide, for I am certain that he is innocent. Tell me one other thing, said the superintendent. What is the association between Petrovska and Grell? Why should she have taken part in this business? Ivan spread out his white hands. That you must find out either from Mr. Grell or her. I don't know. Foyle drew out his watch. All right, Ivan, I'll see you again shortly. Meanwhile, I'll send someone along to get your statement. I don't think you'll regret having decided to speak. Goodbye. End of chapter 50